Welcome to Yousef ICEP, a weekly podcast with Northern Lights Winery founder Doug Bell, exploring the experiences from leaders in business, social media, and family. Now here's this week's exceptional guest. Welcome to Yousef ICEP. I'm Doug Bell, the host of our podcast, and I'm really excited to have Miranda Halliday joining us today. Miranda is the proprietor, the ringmaster, or the toilet cleaner, depending on the day, for Elephant Island Winery in the Naramata Bench, the potentially the original fruit winery and really uh, one of the biggest inspirations that we had when starting Northern Lights Estate Winery. Also just an amazing person with an amazing story. Welcome, Miranda. Thanks, thanks for having me, Doug, and for giving me such a, uh, a well-rounded and very complimentary introduction. I really appreciate that. Well, I'm glad you didn't say it was a shitty introduction talking <laughs> about cleaning toilets, but you know what? I think when you get involved in the wine industry, one thing you learn very early on is that it is not all about the glory. It's not all about the uh, forward facing pictures. So I'm really looking forward to getting deep into your story and finding out what makes you tick and, and how you uh, derive the inspiration to put forward such an amazing amazing facility and an amazing product towards the world. But maybe we can just take us back and transport us into the past a little bit. Where did you get started and how did you get your love for wine and and, uh, wineries and guest experience? The winery we established almost 22 years ago now, and it was a a, um, seed that was planted by my grandparents. So uh, the property that the winery exists on, Elephant Island, was um, built by my grandmother. Uh, she invested in Naramata in 1970 and took her retirement investment. Um, my grandfather thought she was slightly crazy and uh, invested it in agricultural land in the Okanagan Valley, which really was not doesn't resemble anything to what it looks like at this point in time. Um, But she had a vision and she had, uh, she she was one of Canada's first female architects actually. And so she she really found a lot of um, pleasure and and satisfaction in finding this particular location and um, building her, the kind of culmination of her professional her professional pursuits in in building the house here on the farm. And uh, my grandfather came around and he he eventually as well fell in love with the site. It's pretty hard not to in Naramata. It's quite a beautiful spot. But uh, they built the house here on the farm and he was an engineer. So together they collaborated on it. And um, over the process of working with a spouse and and representing all those very uh, passionate kind of um, professional uh, professional passions that they were carrying they um, they sort of they they battled but in a but in a mutually respectful way and um, my grandfather came to refer to the property as elephant island elephant being a white elephant because he never thought my grandmother were getting any return on her investment and then the island was her his commentary on her um her he would say obsession with the aesthetic she would call it appreciation for the aesthetic so um my my childhood was spent here in the summers i grew up in a small town called powell river on the west coast but um, every summer we would decamp to Elephant Island and it was kind of a cool um, story that, you know, I'd come back from summer holidays and be asked where I went and it was this really magical place. I mean, everything's larger than life when you're small and, and Elephant Island was that for me. Now, Elephant Island was started during a period of time that, that wineries were not very common in BC. And as a matter of fact, it was it was kind of early on in that explosive growth um, that the industry saw, especially in the Okanagan. What was the inspiration to start a fruit winery uh, when, at the time, pretty much everything else on the map was grape? Yeah, it was a it was an interesting period of time when we were establishing the winery. Actually, uh, 
So that was 1998, 99 when we first moved up here permanently. And a big driver for me at that point was my grandmother was getting to the point where she was deciding what to do with the property. And I really felt um, it was important that it stayed in our family. Uh, and the industry or the economy actually was quite depressed at that point. Um, the landscape was vastly different here. It was primarily apple orchards and uh, some cherry orchards. Um, vineyards were the exception, not the rule. We were the sixth winery on the bench. So we like to say we're part of the original six, like the NHL, you know, <laughs> and now there's 40, there's 40 different license holders on this 20 kilometer stretch of Naramata Road. Um, and so when we came, um, I alluded to earlier, the seed that was planted by my grandparents. Well, my granddad, uh, in his retirement, um, surrounded by all this incredible fruit that was grown here and coming from an Eastern European background, he, um, he dabbled in producing, well, he, he made tons of different fruit wines and also distillates, which was totally illegal, but he had his own still engineered being an engineer and he made all sorts of really delicious things. And that, that was really part of the fabric of my experiences growing up here was helping him and also um, participating in these incredible picnics that my grandma and he used to host in the orchard for our family, but they were largely centered around food and wine and his Kirsch and Calvados that he made. So, um, we had that seed that, you know, this, this idea, he, him and my grandmother had actually started a business plan probably five or 10 years previous. It was right around the time when um, Vera from Hillside and Gunther Lang had applied or lobbied the government to actually have a separate category for land-based wineries. So, uh, the, you know, there was some, there was some very fortuitous um, intersections of, of their relationships with people that were interested in, in creating a, an industry, a small industry around um, fermented beverages and distillates on the Naramata bench. So it, it, my grand, grandmother and, and he had started this business plan, then he got sick and passed away and nobody in my family had done anything with it. Um, then we kind of fast forward to the 90s, end of the 90s, my husband and I had graduated from university we were living in Victoria and I was working in for the Ministry of Environment not in a field that I like I was more interested in in working in the field but I was working in a government office and so we kind of just decamped up here and said let's figure out if we can do something with this and um my husband was playing of all things professional across so they flew him in and out of wherever he was. And it wasn't like it, professional lacrosse players don't make what professional hockey players make, but in <laughs> our favor was a really high exchange rate on the dollar. So we took all the, the, his, the money he was making from that and got an extra 50% on the dollar. And with my grandma's support started the winery. So it was, um, it was with that seed, that very depressed kind of uh, economy and looking at what the possibilities were in this on this particular property that we were inspired to grow ferment something new and different and when we first started the opportunity to actually produce fruit wines did not exist outside of having a commercial winery license this might be kind of boring for your li listeners but it actually is kind of the nexus of making a viable um, artisanal fermented beverage, beer, wine, distillate, uh, in that the government will allow us to sell direct and, and make it, make it financially feasible. So at that point we didn't have that opportunity. So we, we kind of had to lobby and get out and shake some trees and get in on in the media and, and say, why can't we as farmers have the same opportunity as our vineyard growing neighbors to have this value added market. So timing worked in our favor because um, Apple farmers at that time were blockading Naramata Road because 
Chinese growers had just come on the market and there was a massive flood of apples. Um, and so one arm of the government was saying we need value added markets for other fruit crops and the other was saying no you can't do the same thing as your neighbor who's growing grapes. Um, so in the first two years we got that uh, opportunity direct from our farm gate but we couldn't sell to retailers or restaurants. Uh, we, would, we were still considered um, commercial. But over time, and with, uh, I think, a little bit of critical mass, then that opportunity obviously changed and the landscape's much different now, obviously. Naramata Bench has the 40 wineries, lots of vineyards, not very many orchards anymore. And um, there's quite a few fruit wineries that exist in Newfoundland. Yeah, so there was a lot of inequities uh, between being a grape winery and a fruit winery uh, back when you started. And actually, I would argue that there still is today in many ways. Um, and that that really held you back for the first few years. When you were developing um, the concept that your grandparents had come up, up with, which was building a, a, a fruit winery in the Naramata, that was that something that you took on as a passion project for yourself or was it more driven by the family and, and wanting to support their vision? I uh, know at that point it was just Dell and I, um, you know, my grandmother was here and definitely present on the property, but you know, we were here supporting her ability to age in place. And um, she was here supporting our ability to produce wine she could drink. <laughs> but <laughs> she, um, you know, like nobody really, from our respective families was interested in it at that point or saw the opportunity. It was, you know, it was Dell and I motivated really by, I think, I don't know, there's, there's something magical about Naramata and Elephant Island. And I think just recognizing that there was a real opportunity here and full disclosure, we drank a lot of beer and really bad, you couldn't even call them cocktails, in at that point in our lives so our experience outside of having this history of uh, of these really beautiful picnics and helping my grandfather make it as a as a kid was you know it, there wasn't a lot of knowledge or or I would say at that point appreciation for finely made wines and spirits it was at that point that we really kind of dove in and started to learn and see what the opportunity was and get some practical experience in some of the neighboring wineries that were on the bench at that point. Yeah. So in the early years, I'm sure there was a lot of challenges. In particular, you, you mentioned the inequities, but what are some of the other things you found in the, in the first few years um, in creating a brand new industry? Uh, people weren't really educated about fruit wines. Maybe you weren't even educated about fruit wines. What were some of those things that you found that were really challenging to overcome and how did you overcome them? Honestly, I thought, you know, at the time we anticipated and I, I would say a lot of the bankers that we dealt with anticipated that we would have much more um, prejudice around the um, impression of, of fruit wine as kind of the secondary redheaded stepchild of a traditional vinifera wine. But you know, we really found that we um, that once we got wine in people's mouths, the the impression completely changed and they were very open to tasting. I, th I think we kind of benefited from timing. The industry at that point was quite small, actually. Like I said, there was only six wineries on the bench. We were part of the Association of BC Wine Growers, which like was maybe 30 or 40 wineries up and down the whole valley. And um, our, our, our neighbor, uh, our producing neighbors were so supportive in terms of sharing expertise. And um, I think the public was generally quite open to trying and that, you know, like just actually getting the product in people's mouths. And, and, you know, I think one of our huge wins at that point was hiring um, a winemaker that was trained it well you've used Christine as well so um, classically trained and brought a a professionalism to the wine at the end that fruit wines had not historically been afforded 
So like what we were producing was, was driven by an intention to produce something that was super um, expressive and the best stylistic fit for the fruit in question. We wanted to have food friendly wines. We didn't want to have one dimensional wine and that served us really, really well. The challenges for us came in around the technical handling of a lot of the fruits because there was nothing else that existed out of there out out there that you know there's a lot of trial and error in terms of you know the first year we picked you know just historically cherries were picked with stems on well we didn't realize till after we had them all picked and I can't even remember but I'm you know like we're talking thousands and thousands of pounds that they the you know the equipment we had would not take the stem off the cherry so you know, we had to stand around, we'd modify, my dad still talks about this modified screen door on two sawhorses and, and like taking off thousands and thousands, literally a carpet of stems of these cherries. So things like that and, and understanding, okay, well, you know, the, the pits of cherries, again, I go back to cherries, this is a cherry orchard, but it, you know, the pits of cherries, you can't break too many of them, it imparts such a bitterness, but also, they have cyanide in them. So by the way, do you want to have a product that is like poisoning your your customer? We never had that issue. But you know, like it was, it was trying to develop and sort of um, trial by fire in terms of being able to adapt a lot of the traditional processing equipment, um, so that it would be functional and and efficient and do what we needed it to do with um with the other fruits we were using. Wow, that I mean, that is very interesting. And it's so fun to hear because it is exactly the same experience that we had, uh, you know, only uh, uh, probably, you know, 15 or 20 years later after you started experiencing it, uh, I got the very same experience of, of learning a new industry where not a lot was known about it. So there wasn't a lot of research you could do. And as you're developing out your techniques and your, your processes, um, we were incredibly fortunate as well. Um, that's one synergy that both of our wineries have in common is that Christine LaRue um, is our winemaker consultant. And she came in early on at Northern Lights and really professionalized what we were doing. It was very easy to say that you could make something in a carboy with 22 liters and and have a product that was really you know good quality but doing that on a on a commercial scale is very different and then just the knowledge of all the different things that can go wrong that unfortunately for you fortunate for us uh you know was discovered over the years in terms of color stability and protein and pectines within the products and how to how to make sure that the consumer was getting something that they were really going to appreciate so having a, a christine on board was huge for us were there any other uh, winemakers or or winery owners who you developed relationships with over the years uh, because it was so new and there there's you know a few that were very strong uh, in terms of their voices within building the wine industry in BC. Is there any that you can remember off the top of your head that you really appreciate? Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Like I mean, we've I think Naramata is a pretty small and tight community, and certainly back then the wine community was even that much tighter. But like um, Bob Ferguson and, and, um, Alex Nickel, Bob Ferguson's at Kettle Valley and Alex Nickel were at, at was Nickel, Nickel Vineyards. Um, at the beginning, when we were just getting started, they were, they were super, um, they were, they were really, really always there to lend a hand or, um, offer advice. Uh, they were, they were great, uh, they were great, um, ambassadors for the the wines as well they appreciated them they liked what was different about them and they saw where they had a fit and I think that that was um that was really lovely in that you know we had that instant credibility because our colleagues and and I should say at that point we were really young compared to most of the other people in the industry now we're really old but <laughs> but then we were young we were like I think when we moved up here, we were, well, we were definitely under 30. We were 27, 28. And um, like I said, didn't have any real previous business experience or um, 
uh, and not a lot of wine consumption experience. By that point, we, you know, we dove in and Dell had worked at Red Rooster for a couple of harvests or a year. And he'd taken the winemaking course at OUC. Um, and I was taking a business course through um, Community Futures actually here. But uh, yeah, those two guys were awesome. And then just over the years, I mean, the community of Naramata and the winemaking community in particular has always been pretty tight. We were involved in um, founding an organization called the Naramata Bench Winery Association. So it was one of the first regional wine marketing um, organizations. And, you know, part of that was, it was really fun to socialize with the, those guys. So going and getting together and, and collaborating on initiatives to promote Naramata as a wine touring destination was also really fun because we just like hanging out and sharing information too. Like a lot of it was learning as we went. So Lake Breeze and Garen Elms, we've shared equipment with them over the years. Um, uh, David and Cynthia Enns from Laughing Stock, same thing. Like there, there's so many people that over the years have been really um, instrumental in, I think, the collective growth of this region and certainly for Elephant Island too. Yeah, in, in the wine industry in BC, that's something that when we first got involved was almost shocking to a degree that there is a level of support uh, from other wineries that you don't see in other industries. They don't appear to really feel like anybody is competition uh, within the British Columbia industry. They're really looking at um, all the other wineries as developing out a brand and a reputation that will support everybody. And the philosophy of a rising tide lifts all boats meaning that if more people drink BC wine, whether it be fruit or grape, then everyone benefits from that. You clearly demonstrated that and others demonstrated that to you. But one thing, and I, I don't wanna call you a grandmother in this, but you, you're kind of the grandmother of fruit wines, uh, fruit wineries because you were really the one who led the way. And you also have led the way within the wine industry as a whole. So you've uh, been very instrumental in as a leader and a voice within uh, the community in terms of driving initiatives that are gonna support not just your own winery, but others. Where did that like leadership ability start? And was there a moment that you realized you had to be the one to step up to really drive some of these things home? Yeah, it's funny to, to be acknowledged in that way. I. I don't really see myself necessarily as that person. I guess part of it is just when I see that something makes sense, I like to, you know, I don't, I'm not afraid to talk about it, I guess. And, and maybe, maybe at some point that's what it means is a voice. I, I do like working with people too, like collaboratively. I, I feel like, well, we joke here that, you know, we're we're a huge picture and then we <laughs> then everybody else has to come up and and support us by saying well did you think about this and actually how is the gst going to be applied to that and where does this get funneled through so um i i think that i'm i'm stronger my business is stronger by working collaboratively with people and and i think part of it too is just like constantly trying to learn like you can always be learning something from someone and, and it, I, you know, you didn't, you never know all the answers. You never have enough time to be able to, to access all the information that potentially is out there. So by being open to those opportunities where you can collaborate, I just find it really rounds out your own personal objectives and it's not even objective. It just feels like it's the right thing to do, I guess, more than anything. Yeah. And when you think of clouds and dirt, right? So you're, you're an entrepreneur from the traditional sense in terms of you're thinking your head is in the clouds. You're thinking about what's going to be best long-term for the industry and for your business and for the consumer. Um, but in the dirt, of course, is another very incredibly important uh, component, which is the actual operation and execution of the business. Do you find, did you have to surround yourself with people to be able to 
um, be so successful in that way? Or were you able to transition between the two um, as you were developing? I mean, I think originally we did a lot of stuff. And I mean, we still do a lot of stuff ourselves. It's pretty hands-on. I mean, this year is the first year I've ever hired a tasting room manager. And it's like, I don't know why it took me so long, but, um, and, and, and it's not that I want to micromanage everything, but I guess that, that there's parts of the business that just feel like they're so personal that you want to be, remain really connected to them. Um, but I think that, you know, as you get older, you kind of realize that there's this harmony it's not balance that you're trying to achieve because you're never like in balance between work and and family or work and life but you know at some point if if you look on it look at it on balance for the year if there's a there's sometimes you're up here for family and sometimes you're up here for work on average are you balanced out and that harmony that exists I think is something that I, I don't know if it's out of COVID or, or how that realization has come, but it's like, we need to be able to, to try to balance out what we're doing. And, and in order to do that, we need, you need certain support and you need certain consistency. And I think our businesses are a little bit difficult too, because there's this real strong seasonality to them. And that component makes it difficult to get teams um, and employ them year round and figure out how that, how that, uh, how that's going to be administered. So, um, but we're, we're really lucky. Like I, I consider the team that we have here, many of my, well, most of our core employees have worked for us for more than 10 years and really they're more like family than they are employees. And, and we're really lucky to, to have people that care very deeply about what they're doing and consider it as much their own as, as ours, which it is. So when you're talking about balance in terms of life and, and family and your work needs and your business needs, and those things can change so dramatically, but in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of challenges because of the pandemic but also changes within the industry. It seems like there's this never ending cycle of, of uh, opportunity and challenge within the industry. What are some of the, what are some of the ways or the, the strategies you've taken to try and continue to make sure that your mental health is balanced uh, during such a, a difficult time? Um, I run, <laughs> that's, that's a big part of my, um, my, mental health piece, uh, having an outlet that is outside actually, like making sure that I'm not tied to the desk all day. Um, yeah, just changing the landscape, even shifting a little bit, right. To, to, to be able to like, you know, you kind of get into the cycle of like, Oh, I got to do this, this, and this, my list is this long. And then you realize you've sat here for like three hours and what have you really accomplished? Whereas if you just get up and take a little walk, it's like, oh, that's what I was, you know, trying to work through, or there's a solution there that I didn't actually think. And and much of it for me is just a little bit of a change of scenery or change of perspective that I need to have. Um, yeah, I think that that's, that's pretty much my, my core pieces. Uh, and, and like I said, just like looking for that harmony. So, so making sure that I don't feel guilty when I'm trying to take time off and trying to really check out, which is a hard part, I think, for a mom and for a, I think, I don't know, maybe I don't like to say this when I'm talking to men, but I feel like it's more of a female thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, within the industry, it is certainly um, can be difficult because um, there's also definitely many inequities in terms of um, the male to female ratio at the helm of a lot of these wineries. You are a very strong leader and recognized within the industry. Have you tried to mentor more women and minorities to to become leaders and, and eventually potentially owners of their own wineries? You know, not, not um, 
not objective, like not, I haven't gone out and, and intentionally done that. Um, but I have to say, it's funny when you look at our winery, like we're very female skewed. Um, and again, it's not an intentional thing, but I, I guess that there is this uh, strong, strong attraction to working here or landing here or whatever you want to call it. Um, and then I look at many of the uh, volunteer roles I have and and they're like one of my most rewarding groups that I'm involved with now is called Naramata Slow. And it's a, um, we're a, one of well, now three, I think, uh, Cheetah Slow, Slow Living recognized uh, certified communities in Canada. It's an Italian designation that's kind of the offshoot of um, slow food, but it's slow living. So we haven't quite got to the slow part of living here, but <laughs> but we have a great group and we have been able to accomplish a tremendous amount of things with this small little group of eight people. During COVID, we raised over a million dollars to buy a piece of parkland and um, and that group is prim primarily women. So I, it, it's not necessarily that I've intentionally set out to mentoring or, and maybe I'm just not at that stage in my life yet. I think my kids are still uh, young enough that they require me to mentor them. <laughs> I, although they wouldn't, they wouldn't acknowledge that that's what is happening. But uh, our youngest is just 11. So, you know, that's still a full-time mom job. And our oldest is was supposed to go to university last year, but um, he blew out his Achilles tendon. So he ended up deferring a scholarship and he's going in September. But even then, like they're, you know, he's just like a man child is what I describe him as. I hope he doesn't see this podcast because he'd be horrified. But, you know, they, they need their moms. So I guess I'm not yet at the mentoring part yet. But eventually. Yeah, well, we, we all need our moms. And certainly, uh, uh, I'm no exception to that. Um, Mom, I love you if you're listening to this. Um, but uh, you also are really great with the experiences of the people coming to your facility. And you have a relatively unique setup for your wine shop. And maybe you can describe it to those who haven't been to Elephant Island before and how you really set out to provide a, a, a different experience they can find from other places um, within the Naramata bench. Yeah, well, it, I mean, it was quite a unique experience um, up until before COVID, actually. And now I think it's probably going to be more of a standardized experience. But from uh, the outset of our tasting room really kind of getting busy and having some traction. So probably around 2005, 2006. And it, this is my mom. She, she was helping in the tasting room and she was like, why don't we have people sit down outside? It's so crammed in here. Let's just sit down and share the wines with them in that way. So I pass all the credit to her for starting that initiative. Um, and then it just became a signature in that uh, we have this beautiful tree shaded courtyard that um, I, I attribute that space to my grandmother, of course, being the architect, her big, um, her, one of her core beliefs was designing an inside outside space. So it's kind of like this wonderful outdoor room. And uh, we have our guests seated and offer a tasting experience in the courtyard. Um, so it, just instead of having to belly up to the bar and get your elbows out, I think people really responded to having the opportunity to sit and consider and savor. And hopefully, you know, it just, it became more, um, it became a more useful yeah. medium for us to make, like my big thing is we want our wines to be the hero of our customer's story. And so by having them seated and relaxed, that just gave a better opportunity to create that connection and, and really allow people to appreciate that. Well, certainly I recognize that. And uh, when you go to your facility and um, there's this huge grand tree and you set yourself underneath it, you're, it's nice because it's shaded. Is, of course, it's very hot in the Naramata. 
region and then and they come by and they try the wines it allows you to focus more on the product um, than it does on on what's the, in the wine shop right and uh, um, i've one thing that i've always regretted about other wine winery experiences that i've been to is that most of the time you're looking at a wall full of awards and wines when you're tasting and it hasn't it doesn't allow you to really immerse yourself in what you're tasting and think about it as like an experience where everything around you is connected right you see the fruit trees you know where the fruit comes from the people there are very educational and and then you can um, have an opportunity to try these delicious wines uh, in a slower environment which i guess really lends to um, to what you were talking about earlier um, the the do you consider yourself a farmer or a winemaker I mean, I know you mentioned earlier you don't do too much wine making, but do you consider yourself like a winery entrepreneur or a farmer? I, I relate more to the farm. Um, my husband likes to joke that I like to think I'm a farmer, but I'm not. But I think that that's what really, um, we have chickens and I'm getting sheep this year, which is much to his chagrin. But that's the part that I think really as, as uh as I look forward to the future, I think that we have, and, you know, and we got into this, one of the reasons why we started a fruit winery was because we felt it was important that there was agricultural diversity and that we were giving a market for um, other farms, not just great, great vineyards, but having other, supporting other forms of agriculture. And so, uh, just like looking into the future, I think we have a really important role as stewards, stewards of the land. And, um, and I think there's a huge opportunity for us to contribute to, you know, the betterment of, of our little corner of the planet by like changing how we are doing things. And so we're, we've gone, we're going away this year completely from herbicides. So we're moving towards a, a, um, I'd like to go to this regenerative model, but uh, you know, in the short term, um, organic, and then we'll see where we get from there. Well, that's incredible. I look forward to seeing that as it as it progresses. And you have um, diversified your portfolio over the last few years as well. When did that happen, and what was kind of the idea behind uh, expanding your selections? Uh, so I guess the first iteration was looking to round out our portfolio on the Elephant Island side with um, vinifera, traditional vinifera wine. So we bought another property in, oh no, we, we replanted a portion of our home block in 2009. And part of it was like, we wanted to kind of uh, speak to any critics that we had out there that said we didn't make real wine in at Elephant Island. and. and demonstrate that we were applying the same techniques and and carry it from dirt to bottle so everything we were growing we were making into wine so we added the vinifera component in 2009 then we expanded and bought another farm in 2013 I think so um, now we have a really nice life cycle I think and a real rounded portfolio on the wine side of things having both fruit wines and then um, full spectrum to traditional vinifera wines. And then in 2017, we added the Naramata Cider Company. And, you know, that was part of our, one of the original iterations. We looked at a cidery. Um, and at that point, again, there was no, there was no, we were uh, trying to plug a square peg into a round hole. There was no license opportunity. And really, we felt like we could do more with some of the sparkling wines that we were doing as wine versus cider. But that market really took off in 2017. And, and I, I think that the, the real game changer for me was when I was reading a magazine and I opened up like the center ad, which must have cost like, I can't even imagine, $500,000 in like this massive publication and it was Stella Artois and, and their tagline was 75% hand-picked apples for this new cider they were launching. I'm like, really? This is ridiculous. So then we launched Naramata Cider Company. We'd been making cider through 
you know, just for personal consumption at that point and felt like it really deserved its own home. And there was lots of interesting things that were happening. And so developed that. And we ultimately our goal was to buy another farm and have a dedicated farm for the cider company. But um, in the interim, real estate prices in Naramata went like crazy. And uh, we, we didn't find we we didn't feel comfortable having the Naramata Cider Company in Penticton, so or some other location. So now it exists. It exists here at Elephant Island. Uh, we make all the, the wine and cider here. Um, and then we started another project um, in just last year called Dell Super Cool, which is a uh, it's just a sparkling wine in a can. Um, but we're, we're facing a few headaches with that one right now because we don't conform to what the government wants to call wine and they want to call us refreshment beverage. And that's another, a whole nother story that involves a little bit of drinking to, to get through, but that <laughs> we're, we're navigating that particular challenge. Yeah. How is it, how do you find it balancing all of these? I mean, each one of those in itself is a whole business that would require um, a lot of thought to go through it. How do you balance that with what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, I don't know if I'm doing it very well. Like sometimes I think when, you know, one of the COVID exercises I went through was like looking at how many SKUs we produce and saying, okay, what are we doing ourselves justice here and what are we not? And so um, I think that longer term we need to look at kind of streamlining some of those things but I guess you know for myself and for Dell we sometimes get carried away by the potential and the process um, I guess it's that huge picture and you know there's always things we could be executing better to maybe build some of those brands but at this point you know they're doing it they're doing what they need to in terms of creating great products and drinks and they have their fan base. And if they are going to morph into something bigger, we'll cross that bridge when they come, when we come to it. But um, right now the brand, the, the three, well, the two for sure, Ellison Island and, and Naramata Cider are pretty stable in doing their own thing. And um we have a finite capacity in terms of what we can actually physically produce and sell here. And we're probably at that limit right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you're, you're creating these new projects, there's a lot of innovation and excitement, but um, by dropping one ball, if you're holding 10, it's probably not the end of the world because the net sum game is that you continue to move forward with innovation. You're a leader within the industry. Um, do you find that there's a lot of pressure now that you've been so established for so long with the the young guns like uh myself so to speak because uh, we're always looking for that mentorship and that leadership what where do you find your role is best placed i guess just keeping keeping on keeping on right like keep driving forward i i think that that's one of the big um take up takeaways out of covid for me was that you know we just have to continue to move forward because if we're moving, we're moving somewhere. And I think that um, it, it's kind of, I guess that analogy when you're running to, you know, like if you're running really long distances, it's like, just keep moving. <laughs> so you'll get to, you'll get to where you need to get to eventually. And um, I, I think that seeing what is happening elsewhere in the industry is just, it's exciting. Like I take inspiration from what successes other people are having. And, and I think it becomes a, um, it's more of a collective, right? The success of, of, of new players into the industry means that there's more people that are exposed to um, different wines, different ways of delivering uh, wine experiences. And um, really, I think like on the fruit wine side of the equation, it's kind of an exciting, a really an exciting um, segment of the wine industry because of the demographic shift that's happening right now. 
So seeing what other people are doing um, and creatively how they're, how they're working within the framework that we're required to work from the perspective of regulatory is um, it's really cool. And I mean, I think too, like, you know, the benefit that people, younger people or people that come from other um, areas of expertise they bring to the equation is those experiences and that knowledge base, like, you know, like all the stuff you guys have done with social media and, and the hospitality piece and like, you know, just carving out a whole new frontier. Like, I mean, that in and of itself is, is amazing, really, you know, like what, what those types of opportunities show to other producers is that here there is, where there's a will, there's a way. And when you think outside the proverbial box, like there's cool things that are happening. I, I, you know, I I think a lot of this stuff too, right now with COVID and climate change and supply chain challenges, like, I feel like we're in a really dynamic phase. And and there's we're kind of on the cusp of all sorts of really innovative ways of looking at how we can deliver both an experience and a product to consumers so you've seen so much change over the last 25 years in the industry since you got started um as as the industry progresses for the next 25 years where do you think the the biggest opportunities lie and i know you've kind of mentioned a few here but are there any major trends that you believe will become larger in in the future well i think there's going to be a, a real kind of metamorphosis of what wine looks like and tastes like potentially in terms of how it's presented to the consumer and what the consumer is willing to try uh you know I think, you know, we've always operated within this landscape where 80% of the wine was being consumed by 20% of the population. Well, that 20% is not drinking nearly as much. And the the people that are coming in to take over are way more open to different things, different wines, different, different formulations. Like, you know, I mean, like some of the stuff, this kombucha, like, you know, these weird blends of fermented living fermentation, um, CBD, all that kind of stuff is all becoming more and more relevant. And I think for me, one of the most exciting things is, is trying to look to move away or look at alternative uh, forms of packaging. Like, I think out of the last two years that, you know, this this thought that everything has to go in a glass bottle somewhere and it, it can be only used once. Like I really hope that out of all of this, um, you know, that some of these reviews that are happening, there's, there's support from within the collective industry and, or from government to uh, look at reusing packaging, like washing some of the glass that comes through our recycling stream. They do it for beer and there's enough consistent molds that we should be doing it for our industry as well. Um, and then like things like Tetra packs or cans or um, bag and box or other, like that nobody's even come up with yet. You know, those are the kinds of things that I think are really exciting. I think there may be a movement more towards, you know, as much as we are, creatures of we're pretty big supporters of local in BC. I I feel like there may be even more of that coming down the pipe. Hopefully, you know, eventually we can actually legally supply the rest of Canada. Um, But yeah, I I think as a whole, uh, just innovation and, and less, you know, stayed and true red wine is 14%. And, and I mean, like we're already seeing the alcohol contents go up so much just because of how hot it's been. We had a Chardonnay this year that was 14.9%. Delicious, but 14.9%. And it, it was just so hot out, right? So, I mean, I think we have to, if we're talking about health and there's, there's more and more awareness about health and alcohol, 
we have to be able to adapt, which right now is really difficult within the constraints of existing regulation to provide, be able to provide uh, the consumer with other choices and other beverages that are maybe not just a conventional, conventionally fermented wine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the industry has gotten so complicated, and yet there's never been more opportunity than there is right now, if you're able to take advantage of the way the industry is moving, which there is no doubt is changing substantially. And also, you know, the, the term wine, I think, is going to change over time as well in terms of what consumers are looking for. And, and wine has a very traditional sense when you talk about it in terms of what it is and what it can do but the new consumer coming out doesn't have those biases that um, maybe our traditional consumer that's been drinking wines for the last 40 to 50 years has had uh, so never never more opportunities is there any other exciting things coming down the pipeline for elephant island and your group of companies that um, you're willing to share uh, with us Oh, I'm trying to like streamline and simplify. <laughs> no, we are. Uh, I think. I think. Yeah. Like. I mean. This. This move towards um, looking at alternative packaging and creating experiences that um, you know allow people to to uh, indulge. Not just indulge. It's, it shouldn't be an indulgence, but actually appreciate wine in different places and you know, without having to, to tote around a glass bottle everywhere. That's kind of really at the forefront of what we're doing. And, and then augmenting that with this, um, this trend, this commitment that we're making towards uh, this regenerative uh, agriculture and um, sort of building out the experiences on farm in terms of having people being able to do different um, tastings in different parts of the farm. Those would be a few things that I think are are definitely on the horizon. Um, whether or not they'll happen this year or next year, we'll see. That's amazing. Um, where can people find you on the social channels if they'd like to stay in touch? Um, so we're at Elephant Isle at E L E P H A N T I S L uh, on Twitter or no, not Twitter. Sorry, Instagram and Facebook, and um, online ElephantIslandWine.com. Well, that's wonderful. You've uh, enlightened us a lot. Uh, you can find Elephant Island wines across the province of BC, or of course, if you're anywhere near the Naramata, I highly, highly recommend coming by, saying hi to Miranda and checking out some delicious products. Um, this has been another episode of You Sip, I Sip. I'm Doug Bell. Thank you very much, Miranda. Uh, I'm gonna be having a bottle of your wine tonight and I can't wait to hear more about what you're doing in the future. I'll be keeping in touch. Thank you so much and we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to You Sip, I Sip. Please hit the five-star rating and leave us a review. If you'd like to learn more about Northern Lights Winery, text us at 604-670-4046 or visit us on social media at Northern Lights Winery.